Thank you, Lord, for your continued ongoing providence and sovereignty, faithfulness, mercy that you demonstrate in our lives. We thank you that the gospel is still effective and works, and we thank you that you've been kind enough to reveal your word to us. We pray that you might help us as we look at the word today, that it might encourage us, that it might rebuke us, that it might work in such a way as to be effective in our lives, that we may submit to it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This past week, our family went out uh, to do uh, a little bit of fishing in a small pond, and uh, we um, caught, I think, all bluegills, and they were, you know, all this small each. Uh, But there was a whole school of them in the area that we were at, and uh, all, we didn't even have to cast the line at all. We would just simply hold the pole in there, and they would just all uh, group around it, and we were just catching them one after the other. Um, and we were using uh, mealworms for bait, which is always a good choice. Um, and uh, the fish, uh, obviously, uh, bites not knowing or not realizing that there is a hook in it. Fish doesn't even understand the concept of what a hook is, okay? But it just bites thinking that it's going to get some food, and it doesn't know until it's too late, until it finds out that there's a hook in it. Uh, We can catch fish through trickery, through placing a hook in something that they find attractive. They don't know about the danger until it's too late, uh, in like manner, there's all kinds of examples that we could use of this. Uh, we have had uh, an incredible amount of Japanese beetles in our little orchard this year. that have been very annoying, and so we got one of those bag traps. And uh, apparently they have a uh, pheromone that it releases, and they all just come swarming over, and then they get stuck in this bag, and we're just you know, catching them by the gallon in this little bag here. Um, And of course, the principle is the same. It lures them with something that attracts them, and they don't know that there's danger until it's too late. Unless we think that as human beings, we are advanced beyond this same strategy, we need to think again, because we too fall to lures, and to bait. Just as easily as the fish and the Japanese beetles and whatever else you want to say. Solomon tells us, uh, he gives to us an example of one of the ways in which we can fall trapped to this. He says, The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Sexual immorality, sexual promiscuity, adultery, and pornography is nothing more than a lure on a hook. And we don't know that there's a hook in it until it's too late. Or instead of using the term hook, Solomon uses the term, a two-edged sword. You take the bait, and then it kills you. 
Likewise, our first parents' first sin functioned in the same manner. Genesis 3, 6, there was a lure. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. She actually knew beforehand, by the way, that there was a hook in it. But she chose to believe that that was a lie. It was attractive to her. There was a lure here. She ate it, and death came onto the human race. Joshua also tells us another story in Scripture uh, of Achan, who uh, fell into the same trap. Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them as a lure and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And the rest of the story is that his family dies because of this. Sexual immorality promises pleasure but delivers death. Greed promises riches but delivers emptiness. The fear of man promises popularity, but delivers imprisonment. Bitterness promises justice, but delivers enslavement. Each of these things is the bait, and there is always a hook inside. As someone has once rightly said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Or, as one commentator said, pleasure promises more than it can produce. Its advertising agency is better than its manufacturing department. And in our passage today, John is going to introduce to us three tried and true lures of Satan that he uses over and over and over again to capture humanity. And by the way, Satan has a pretty good success rate with these lures. Let's read the passage, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. You know this passage very well. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Very simple outline today, the command in verse 15, temptation, and then the hope that we have. Verse 15 introduces to us two opposing entities. It starts off by saying these two entities, these two things are at odds with one another and they don't mix together at all. On the one hand, you have the world And, uh, of course, this is the system, the collection of philosophies, the worldviews, the beliefs, the values that make up the unbelieving world. On the other hand, you have what in the text? The Father. The Father and the world. They are polar opposites. It's like oil and water. And so much so are these two realities opposed to one another that if you love one, it can be said that you do not love the other. There's no halfway, there's no sitting on the fence, there's no I love this one 50% and this one 50%. It is you either love this one 
or you love that one. And if you love this one, then you hate that one. And if you love this one, then you hate that one. You cannot love both. They are mutually exclusive. That's what verse 15 tells us. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is something that we see throughout Scripture. Another example of this is James 4. In verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't be friends to both. It is one or the other. Jesus also says something very similar to this in Matthew twelve thirty. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Again, this theme is being woven throughout these passages where we have very clear polar opposites. There's no uh, neutrality. There's no sitting in the middle. It is you gather or you scatter. You're with Christ. You're not with Christ. You love Christ or you love the world, one or the other. The point is, in all of these passages, is that there is no such thing as neutral territory. There's no neutral grounds. As one pastor has said one time, it is either Christ or chaos, one or the other. Now, this is particularly challenging for us to understand, but understand it we must. We have a tendency to believe, for example, that society should be a neutral entity, and then we are free to flesh out our convictions in our own relative private arenas. What should be obvious to us is the impossibility of neutrality. One uh, apologist calls this the pretended neutrality fallacy. That is to say, we are pretending to be neutral when we really can't be. We really have to take a side. We really can't live in this non-committal zone. It is either Christ or not, Christianity or not, God or not God. We pretend to be neutral, but we really have to confess that we can't be in part because our society has laws, and those laws are going to be biased towards something. They're going to say this or that, and we want them to be laws and policies and things that reflect what Christ would have us to reflect. Now, before I get too distracted from the passage here, understand this, and this is what we're saying. The goal for the Christian... The goal for you and I is not to remain neutral, but to remain strongly committed to the cause of Christ. That is our goal. We are Christians. That's supposed to mean something. And it means that we are committed to following our Lord, whose name is Jesus Christ. That's what this means. This means that we are to have no colluding with the enemy. In other words, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I alluded to this previously a little bit, but the word world here does not refer to the people in the world. He's not saying don't love people. He's not saying that. We are supposed to love people. Also, this word world does not refer to God's created order. 
God called that good. We know that the things that God created are good. The world, uh, I'll just give you one lexicon, defines the word world this way. The world and everything that belongs to it appears as that which is hostile to God, lost in, in sin, wholly at odds with anything divine, ruined and depraved. Uh, we could simply say this. Anything that celebrates the world's values is from the world and is what we are to not love in this passage. In fact, we are not only to not love these things, we are to hate these things because they are opposed to our Lord. They are opposed to what Jesus Christ says is good in this world. And secondarily, because things that are of the world lead ultimately to uh, unhappiness on our part. It's good that God says this is how the world is ordered, but it also happens to lead to a good culture as well. Um, it makes no sense to say, for example, that I hate sexual immorality, but that I enjoy watching it. It's like the man who says that he hates fast food, but secretly goes out and buys it every chance that he gets. He may claim that he dislikes it, perhaps for socially acceptable reasons, but in fact, he secretly desires it. And there are all kinds of directions and applications that we could go right now. We're not to love the world or the things in the world, the values of the world. And we could spend the rest of the day today listing all of the things that promote the values of the world. One might think of one's entertainment choices offered by the world. I find it perplexing that some believers celebrate in practice what they deny in principle. I deny this is a bad thing, but I will celebrate it through entertainment in this way. If you laugh at Hollywood's sexual innuendos and are drawn to the movie industry's sexual agenda, then you might not hate the world as much as you think you hate the world. Are you seriously saying that everything created by Hollywood has somehow been uh, created by the world, forged by the world, but has no remnant of the world's values? Okay, there are, um, there are some good things out there, okay? I understand this. Um, but there are things that reek of the world's values. Sometimes in an effort to win the world, we try and make ourselves look like the world supposed to hate it, not love it, not put it on as camouflage. Demas demonstrated this for us because he ultimately went after the world. Second Timothy chapter 4, Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. Uh, if you have not read Pilgrim's Progress, I know I said this recently, but I'm exhorting you once again to do this, okay? Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, I think Spurgeon said we should read this every year, okay? Now, I haven't kept that up, but it's a good thing to read. And in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Bunyan actually tells, some of you will know, of the interaction between Christian and Demas. You may recall this scene in the book. Uh, Christian and Hopeful are walking along, and Demas suddenly invites Christian to join him. And Christian asks... 
if following after Demas, he asks Demas, is it dangerous? And what does Demas, who is in love with this present world, what does he say to Christian? Not very dangerous, except to those that are careless, but withal he blushed as he spake. Eventually, Christian condemns Demas, and Christian says this, I know you. Gehazi was your great-grandfather and Judas your father, and you have trod in their steps. It is but a devilish prank that thou usest. Thy father was hanged for a traitor, and thou deservest no better reward. Eventually, another character in the story, by ends, comes along with his group, and Christian and Hopeful have walked away from Demas, and they turn around and they look back and they see Byens and his group from a distance, and then we read this. By this time, Byens and his companions were come again within sight, and they at the first back went over to Demas. Now, whether they fell into the pit by looking over the brink thereof, or whether they went down to dig, or whether they were smothered at the bottom by the damps that commonly arise, of these things I am not certain, but this I observe, that they never were seen again in the way. Let me give you a little piece of friendly advice. If you want to shipwreck your life, go follow the values of the world. Go there for wisdom and understanding and knowledge. Granted, you may fall into the pit as a very popular individual. You may fall into the pit uh, as one who has a high status and no one ever thought ill of you, no one ever laughed at you or made fun of you for Christ, no one ever opposed you. You may fall into the pit that way, but you'll fall into the pit nonetheless. And if we are to avoid this fate, the fate of Demas, the fate of Byens and his companions, then we're going to need to know what the snares are as they are littered out on the path in front of us. We are going to be walking through this thing called life, and in front of us there are going to be snares, snare after snare after snare after snare after snare. And you cannot just walk through this life blindly, going about your own way, minding your own business. You have to be going through this world, watching out for landmines everywhere. And he tells us in the next verse what these snares look like. Verse 16, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So there are three things that ensnare us. There are three things in this passage that function as a little rubber worm or as a mealworm that has a hook in it. Three different things. The desires of the flesh is the first one. Some translations call this the lust of the flesh. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan, defines it this way, the lust of the flesh is subjectively the humor and appetite of indulging fleshly pleasures and objectively all those things that excite and inflame the pleasures of the flesh. In other words, the desires of the flesh 
are those desires that come from the flesh, the sinful flesh, and not from the Spirit. All of the desires that you have inside of you that are opposed to God, those are the desires of the flesh. We actually have a list of some of these things um, in uh, Galatians, and I think I have Genesis here instead of Galatians, but that's okay. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there's all sorts of things that we could include in this list under the desires of the flesh a desire for revenge, a desire for immorality, a desire for fame and recognition. We could say anger, bitterness, covetousness, desiring your neighbor's wife, a desire to look wise in the world's eyes and not like a fool. A little child pursues the desires of his flesh when he throws a fit after his parents put away the Rocky Road ice cream. A teenager pursues the desires of his flesh when he wastes his life away on video games and indulges his laziness. An adult pursues the desires of his flesh when he commits adultery. The older you get, generally the bigger the consequences get. And by the way, also the older you get, the harder it is to tame it. So start young. Next up on the list is the desire of the eyes. MacArthur notes this. He says, however, as they let in light, so they are open windows for temptation to enter. So eyes can be used for good, but also for evil. Thus, sin perverts the use of the eyes and plunges people into dissatisfaction, covetousness, and idolatry. Likewise, Henry says, the eyes are delighted with treasures, riches, and rich possessions are craved by an extravagant eye. This is the lust of covetousness. We saw this verse a few moments ago, but let me show you what this looks like in practice. Genesis 3 and verse 6. We're specifically talking about the lust of the eyes. When the woman saw, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve yielded to the desire of her eyes. She saw that it was good for food. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. So serious is the corruption here, and so easy Is it for us to be tempted with our eyes that Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out? Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, everyone who looks at a woman woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Likewise, Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Likewise, Achan's sin that we saw earlier 
began with seeing something. I saw something. I desired it. Some of us may find ourselves, ironically, no smarter than a fish, just lunging at the first shiny thing that appears in front of us, just driven along by our passions, absolutely no self-control. This is, by the way, the default position of the human soul. You come into this world with no self-control. You come into this world as a fool, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. If you, do, if you do not drive this out of yourself, you will be carried along by your lusts and by your desires, and you will be a slave and they will be your master. And we're exhorted here not to yield to these things. I have a desire that comes and wells up inside of me. And what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to evaluate this according to Scripture. Is this a God-given good desire, or is this a desire of my flesh? And if it's a a desire of the flesh, then you are to say, you're not in charge here. The Lord is. I will not submit to this particular thing. The third one is the pride of life. Again, going back to Henry, Matthew Henry, he defines it this way. He says, a vain mind craves all the grandeur, equipage, and pomp of a vainglorious life. This is ambition and thirst after honor and applause. Does anybody here crave applause? Okay, we have like one honest person. That's all. Everybody here, to some degree or another, craves that recognition. This is the pastor who refuses to take sides on cultural issues because he doesn't want to rock the boat. He wants to get applause from all people, and so he tries to appeal to everybody. This is the office worker who laughs at the double entendre for fear of his co-workers thinking that he's one of those stuffy Christians and thus attempts to hold a position of honor in his group. This is the politician who campaigns on how great and wonderful he is, uh, who is unable to see his weaknesses or his sins or his faults. Or the politician who engages in political theater by acting one way in front of the cameras and another way when they're off the cameras. One commits this sin when one portrays themselves as something other than they are in order to impress someone. This sin could be committed by purchasing a vehicle you cannot afford with money that you do not have in order to portray yourself as better in the eyes of others or whatever you want to do in order to say, look at how great I am. But as the old adage goes, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. All these things, according to verse 16, are from the world and not the Father. And by the way, you are more susceptible to these lures than you think you are. You are more susceptible to these lures than you think you are. You and I are very quick to jump after something that's shiny. Some of you may even be duped right now in this very moment and cannot even see that you have a hook in your mouth. Instead of these things, we must look to Christ. 
verse 17. This is the hope. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. One day, God will destroy every enemy. Every enemy will fall. And every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. You can do that now, or you can do that later under duress. But you will do it. Every enemy will submit to him. And one day, praise God, the desires of the flesh will pass away and we will struggle no more. This is a glorious reality. Whoever does the will of God will live forever. C.T. Studd once famously wrote, Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And this really is, in many ways, the gist of this passage. You can pursue all those lures, but in the end you'll find out that there's a hook in them and that they don't last. Pursue Christ instead. Those who do God's will are those who are Christians. That is, those who love the Father and not the world. Those people have eternal life. They will live forever. I want to tie up a couple of loose ends in this passage today. And I want to do this by warning you to avoid two errors. And these two errors that I want us to avoid tend to be errors that are at opposite sides of the spectrum. People who have uh, seen the first error committed will oftentimes react to that by committing the second error. And people who look out and see the second error being committed will oftentimes react to that and commit the first error. And what I am suggesting to us is that both of these are errors and both are related to the passage in front of us. Okay. The first error that I want to expose here is the error that thinking that if you isolate and insulate yourself from the world, you will be prevent, prevented from sinning. Um, this passage does exhort us not to love the world. And that means not participating in the things that the world are participating in. Okay? But that does not mean that we are to go live as hermits so that we can avoid contact with the world. It seems like there's people in every generation that fall into this trap, and I want to remind us that we have three enemies. Okay? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay? The world, 
the flesh, and the devil. Okay? Different uh, denominations have a tendency to emphasize one of these at the exclusion of the others. Some denominations emphasize the devil, and everything is demonic, and every single thing that happens is because I'm being afflicted by a demon, and every sin that I fall into is because of demonic influence, and that's, and we, and that, that's the focus. Other denominations have a tendency to emphasize the world uh, and worldliness. And so the strategy there is a little bit different. Uh, While the, the strategy of those who emphasize demonic activity may come to strange conclusions like we should practice exorcisms or something odd like that, those who predominantly put their focus on the world are going to be those who are going to most likely retreat from it and isolate and insulate themselves from the world. Okay? And then others emphasize the fact that uh, of, of the flesh. Now, what is important to remember here is that sin, we are tempted by all three of these. Okay? That we're not to forget one or the other. But I want to just add something here and say this. If the temptation comes through the world, or if the temptation comes through the devil, it always has to go through the flesh. I, I have to yield to that temptation. To yield to that. And I have to, to give way to that. Um... We have to remember that the devil in the world cannot make us sin. We are accountable for our sin, in other words. They can tempt us, but it has to come through the flesh. This is, by the way, the reason why Satan tempts us with things that appeal to the flesh. Things that you like. Some people have insulated their families in order to prevent them from having contact with the world. And while this passage is teaching us to avoid the influence of the world and the love for the world, it is not teaching us to avoid having a presence in the world. How could we evangelize people? How could we love people if we removed ourselves from it? Many children grow up to realize in adulthood that their parents kept them so isolated from the world that they can't function in it at all. Okay, You've probably seen some people like this. This is not what we're called to do, okay? Now, the second error is an error that is frequently committed by people who dislike that first error very much. And so they end up, in trying to do a course correction, end up oversteering, and now the vehicle is going in the other direction, okay? And the second error is this. Do not think that worldliness is subjective, Suddenly, everything is a conscience issue now, right? Well, that's an issue of conscience. That's an issue of conscience. That's, an, that's subjective. That's, you, every, everyone has got to come to their own conclusion before the Lord on whether that's acceptable or not. If you make this error, then what you're doing is you are practically removing God from your life. 
you're saying, God, this is ultimately something that I've got to come to the conclusion of, and you're ignoring what Scripture says on these particular topics. Okay? So if, for example, your parents made you wear a burlap potato sack in the name of modesty, you cannot react to that by saying modesty is now a conscience issue. You, you understand what I'm saying with this? Okay? Suddenly, I've been so insulated and so overprotected from the world that now this issue is completely a conscience issue. You still have a responsibility to be modest, even if your parents went overboard. If, for another example, your parents only let you watch the Andy Griffith show and leave it to Beaver, which happen to be good shows, by the way, um, <laughs> you can't react to that by saying that all entertainment choices are only a matter of conscience now. Right? I'm simply admonishing us to take this passage seriously today. That's all that we're doing, right? What does this passage tell us? It's, it's telling us, don't love the world. That has to mean something. It has to mean like practical instances, specifics of I'm not going to do this because I don't love these things. I love Christ more. And I know that there are some things. I'm not saying that there are no such thing as conscience issues. We went through the book Conscience, by the way, in this church a couple years ago. Uh, if you were not here for that study, I would encourage you to go pick up the book Conscience and read through it. It's an excellent, excellent book on the topic. Okay? But you can't fall into the trap that thinking that everything now is subjective and it's just wishy-washy. It's not what the text is calling us to recognize either. If something is infused with the values of the world, then don't love it. And if you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. It's a harsh statement. Do not love the world or the world's values, because if you do, you reveal that the love of the Father is not in you. And so I have just three points of application for us today. Very simple. First one is very obvious from the passage here. Do not love the world or the world's values. If this is celebrating something that is opposed to God, then I'm not going to watch it, be exposed to it, love it, cherish it, be with it. I'm going to condemn it as something that's opposed to the Lord. Simple. Application number two, be on guard against the temptations of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. An additional part of this application, or a part B of this application, is to ask others whether or not you yield to these temptations. Okay, Ask your spouse, ask someone here at the church, are there any areas where I have been grabbing onto that lure, and I have a hook in my mouth, and I can't see it? Okay? You can just say, is there a hook in my mouth, okay? Am I, am I yielding in any way to this? And the reason for this is because we're often blinded to our own areas of, uh, of weakness. Number three, if you do find that you love the world, 
repent and believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. This is, the, this is how we change out of this. If I, am, if I look at my life and I'm saying, I, there's just, I just don't love anything about I just love everything about the world. What is the answer to this? It's repent and believe in the gospel. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for this time and this passage. Help us not to love the world or the things in the world. I pray that you might help us to be very careful and cautious in our own lives and that we might avoid loving those things that come from the world and that we would love you and you alone. I pray that if there's anyone who doesn't know Christ, that you would help them to repent and believe in the gospel. And those of us who are in Christ, you would encourage us, help us to pursue the things that please you for your honor and your glory in Christ's name. Amen.